Behind the Bite podcast is part of a network of podcasts that are good for the world. Check out podcasts like the Full of Shit podcast, After the First Marriage podcast, and Eating Recovery Academy over at practiceofthepractice.com backslash network. Welcome to Behind the Bite podcast. This podcast is about the real life struggles women face with food, body image, and weight. We're here to help heal, inspire, and create better, healthier lives. Welcome. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to Behind the Bite podcast. As always, I really appreciate when people are on here and are willing to be vulnerable and share their stories with us. And if you've ever listened to the podcast, you've probably heard lots of people come on here and share their stories. And so um really appreciate return listeners. And if you're new to the show, welcome. Uh, I always think, you know, everybody's got their own unique stories. And while there are some similarities with people who have disordered eating, eating disorders, body image issues, uh, I always think that there are unique things to everybody that maybe somebody out there has listened to some past stories and thought, maybe I can't quite relate to this person's story, but maybe you'll listen today and you'll listen to today's guest and something will really click with you and you'll resonate. And that might be something that, you know, gets you on your path to recovery and to your journey of healing. And that's why I bring on so many different people to talk about their stories, because I think that's powerful. And as I've shared on the podcast before, that's what was really missing for me long time ago when I was uh, going through all this myself, I just really thought I was failing at dieting. And I wish I had heard other people's stories. I wish I had heard many, many stories. Maybe I needed to hear five, 10, 15, who knows how many until I really understood that I had an eating disorder and I was not just needing to find the next best diet or figure out how to, you know, measure out food better or do exercise differently. Um, Though I really hope that at some point, any of you out there listening, you know, really click with something and really realize that you have an illness and this is not something that you're doing wrong or that you're failing at. Um, And really listen to the stories and, and hear that people do recover. People do make shifts and change and get beyond all of this. Uh, really excited to have our guest on here today because she's talking about something that, you know, other guests have brought up, but um, she has gone further than a lot of people and really written a book um, that really hones in on the family dynamics. And, you know, I think there is some fear talking about the impact and the influence that um, family members have had on eating disorders. Um, and we're going to talk about that more in the podcast today. So, uh, before I say any more, I want her to, uh, talk more about herself and her story and and her, her book. Uh, Susan Gold is here and, um, you know, it started early for her in her life and she's here to talk all about everything. And so, like I said, I'm just going to bring her on and let her say everything, uh, herself. All right. Well, Susan, welcome to the show. Excited to have you here. Thanks for having me, Christina. I'm delighted to be with you. And I've been listening to some episodes 
prepping and really like the content you're producing. Well, thank you. And, you know, you fit right in. You um, you have quite a story of your own to share. And I know you just wrote a book that's coming out. Um, and so, uh, you know, for, for listeners who don't know anything about you, uh, what is it about you that maybe makes you relevant to being on the show? And how did you get started with writing your book? Well, you know, I never thought I was going to be an author. I didn't think my story was that unique. I grew up in a very chaotic um, household. I knew something was awry, like very early. I was very intuitive. I was highly sensitive, very empathic. I could sense the emotions mm-hmm. in the room, like as soon as I walked in. And it was very difficult to live in a toxic family system. Let's just call a spade a spade. That's the title of my book is Toxic Family Transforming Childhood Trauma into adult freedom. And toxic family was not my title. That's my publisher's title. My title was magical illumination because Christina, that's what I feel like it's been is I've, I've walked through it, waking up to it bit by bit, but I sued through food very early on. And I was, I was following my mother's patterning. My father is a genius astrophysicist, but he used alcohol to hide his pain and his sorrow. And then he used exercise like a bulimic would food. And my mother soothed through overeating and food. And back then they prescribed diet pills, which was straight speed. So I was being raised by an alcoholic and speed freak. And it was a very unlevel playing field. And I wanted out as soon as possible. And I remember coming home from my mother's parents, my grandparents, and they had always packed treats in the bag. And I secretly snuck in and got the bag of Oreos out and tore it very quietly and could not stop, (laughs) could not stop. Just the panic and the terror that I felt. And as an empath, you're soaking up the emotions around and trying to make things better. And it was just post-traumatic stress almost almost from the the get-go. And I have great love for my family. I've come to a place that I really understand after quite a bit of work that they had roles to play. They were pivotal in my growing as a soul in this human walk. And they really gave me a lot of material to work with. So the red flags surfaced very early. I left my home at 17, the morning after I graduated from high school. I had a strong desire to get to New York City. I used to watch Barbara Walters in my basement on my beanbag chair. And I wanted to get to New York City and be like Barbara Walters. I was there at 19 in Greenwich Village living on my own. I had negotiated my way out of college for an internship, my winter term. And that was like, before that was chic, you had to really, you know, plead to get out and plead your case. And I ended up going after college back to New York City and worked at this glittery talent agency that's still around today. It's called ICM. And I wasn't making enough money. So I started training people on the side and Barbara Walters became my exercise client. And one morning I I rang her doorbell at 7 a.m. And she said, Susan, get in here. What's going on with you? And she could call it right away. She was highly intuitive as well. And she got it out that I had been sexually harassed in the workplace the day before. 
And um, I used to cover those feelings with food and I was newly sober, so I couldn't drink anymore. So I was turning more and more to food. And Barbara said, I'm coming to work with you this morning. We're going to confront this man together. And I'm like, you know, Barbara, I think I'm okay. I'm going to, I'm going to deal with it. And uh, I confronted my boss that day and he promptly fired me. I think I had two and a half months of money in the bank. And I had just extricated myself from an abusive relationship where the man held the purse strings. And I was not going to go back into that relationship, but I was really substituting what I did with alcohol now with, with food. It was really uncomfortable. So it's so like, you know, you fast forwarded from like childhood in your home to, you know, being this young adult in New York. Um, curious, like at what point did you start, you know, you talked about using Oreos for comfort and like, you know, it's a lot, a lot of kids do, they use food for comfort and, you know, sneaking the food and feeling that anxiety. And I'm just curious, like, obviously you had a father who was um, using alcohol and that was a role model for you. What point did you start using alcohol yourself? So it switched towards the end of high school. I really preferred food over alcohol. For some reason, it was more soothing to me. And I didn't like really being out of control because I blacked out fairly soon, which is, it is, it's a sign you may be allergic to alcohol. If you're blacking out, losing time, losing consciousness, you know, waking up, not really understanding how you got back into your dorm room could mm. be an issue. Um, so, and then in my twenties, I started falling short of my goals and my dreams and I started hanging out with a seedier crew and I didn't understand why I was losing my boundaries and I was replicating behavior I saw demonstrated in my home. And luckily I could see the signs and I asked a friend for some help. She passed me a card of a therapist she got from a friend and I went and back then you didn't go to somebody and pay them money to talk about your problems out loud. And here I was. And he promptly started talking about, was there alcoholism in my family? How much did I drink? You need to go to meetings to learn about your father's drinking problem and need to go to other meetings to learn out about how growing up with addiction affected you as a child and is affecting you today. Well, so you're in therapy it sounds like you stopped drinking and you're using food. And so were you also, when you were in therapy, were you also working on like why you were using food or were you just focused on like the drinking part? So initially I just took the information and applied it to my food and did the best I could. And that worked for a great while until I went from New York to LA. I was invited for what I thought was a great career move. And it was. But ultimately, it was to me the man who would become one of my greatest gurus, as in the word teacher. And that would be the man who would become my ex-husband. But um, here I was in a new environment and all those insecurities came up. I didn't have an issue with drinking anymore. I'd been sober for like well over a decade. And I've been sober for decades now. But the food really came up and I had no control. It was almost like it was flinging itself out of the cupboards and down my throat. I mean, that's how insidious the addiction had become. So I finally got help 
and address the food issue. But what really shifted it was when I came to understand that there is that beautiful inner light within me, inside my heart. And I wanted to be gentle with her, not bludgeon her and criticize her and ostracize her and shame her as had been the standard norm. You've been like your now ex-husband became this like mentor, teacher. Um, What role do you, like looking back, do you think he played in all of that? Well, I definitely soothed my pain. Um, And I was very mum in that relationship. I didn't understand narcissism or narcissistic abuse at that point. And I was carrying the load and I was getting more and more exhausted and my life was becoming more and more small. And what I did with the addiction then was to focus it in endurance athletics. So I was training like an NC2A athlete well into adulthood and just anesthetizing my pain through this. And that took care of, right, the food addiction, you know, and I swung the other way with my food and got rail thin when my husband announced that he was hiring an attorney and filing a divorce for a divorce. And that intuition that I have and have had since childhood was very strong when he said that. It was as if it came over my right shoulder and through my heart. And it said, this is the universe doing for you what you cannot do for yourself because I was going to have to finally address the self-hatred and the anxiety and the codependence that I was layered in. My heart was almost blackened. So the experience of going through the divorce with him in the master and me by choice in a partial conversion with a mattress on the floor in our garage in a home that I had bought, paid for, and maintained for our family. That's the billboard it took, Christina, to really go deep and really start to do the work and take off those layers that were harnessing me in these false belief systems. I mean, there's that spiritual axiom, point one finger out, three come back. I think as an empath, that's a very dangerous axiom to follow because it can cause you to stay in relationships and in belief systems and addictions that no longer belong to you. So it took a year um, of holding no contact. I was a long-term meditator as well as an endurance athlete. I took everything I learned growing up in my family home to survive. Everything I learned in athletics, everything I learned producing for television and film and everything I learned as a meditator to hold no contact for one year in the same domicile. And then finally, we came to an agreement. I could write him his check and he left the household. And that's when the pieces really came together for me. Through that experience, I really saw my own authentic purity, power, and beauty. And that's when the self-love got real. And I could no longer overeat and really say to myself, is this the most loving thing? I could no longer get up 
and go into a pool at 5.30 a.m. That's 76 degrees and it's 38 on deck on a cold, you know, Southern California morning. I started to treat myself with, with more gentleness and more love. And that's why I call my ex-husband my greatest guru. So for people who maybe don't know, like the terminology, no contact and hear the word like narcissism, like um, at what point did you realize maybe he was toxic for you? I mean, aside from him, like filing for divorce, but like while you were with him, I don't know how long you were married, but did you realize the toxicity in the marriage and just felt so awful about yourself? You just didn't feel like you could leave or what was going on for you during the marriage? I felt, I felt the red flags intuitively. And we, when we married, I had this sinking feeling, oh my gosh, what did you do? What did you do? Mm-hmm. And it was about him. I'm just one of those that have been raised that, you know, the males rank before the boys, you know, take out the trash, maybe you mow the lawn. The girl, my sister was like making dinner for a family of seven. I was doing the laundry and, you know, the cleaning and, you know, so we had a lot of weight. And um, it was ingrained in me that no one was going to take care of me and that my tastes were high and that no one was going to want me because I, because I was too much. So I carried that into my relationships, Christina, and was carrying it into this one. And I had heard the word narcissism, but it didn't really register. And then for some reason, I Googled that word and I was like, this is where I'm living. This is my relationship. This is what's wrong. And I dove head in for two years. I did research before I, I, we went to mediation and I tried to work things out because I didn't want my marriage to end. And mm-hmm. uh, even though I knew I was well past the expiration date, I didn't want to face that. Just like I didn't want to face losing food as a, a friend and ally of soothing and the same with alcohol. And um, ultimately, I did have to stand up and to go through a narcissistic relationship to leave it holding no contact, meaning no communication and no eye contact if you're in the same environs is absolutely crucial to get through it. I I have friends that are still bouncing in and out years later and in and out of child custody court. Um, It's a horrendous place to be, especially when you love someone, you want to fix them, you want them to be well. And um, that ultimately wasn't to be, I had to face this head on and I did hold no contact and that did work. And within one calendar year, it was, it was settled. So, you know, that is actually common, you know, people, it takes average is what, seven, eight times to leave a toxic relationship with somebody who, you know, they have narcissistic personality disorder, which I know people say that word all the time, but if somebody truly is diagnosed with that and truly has this disorder um they are very manipulative it is very toxic relationship and they can be very difficult to leave um curious though like how did you know to have no contact like where did you so so during that two-year period after I googled that word Mm -hmm. 
I read the work of Sam Backman. There's a woman in Australia named Melanie Tonya Evans, and there was just a plethora of information out. And I did a program called Narcissistic Abuse Recovery mm-hmm. Program while I was living in the partial conversion in the garage. And Christina, while talk therapy was important for me to get the storyline down, more somatic modalities are really and truly what have shifted my consciousness and maybe shifted the neural pathways to create new behaviors and change me at a cellular level of being. And that year was excruciating. I had to face every fear down to the core of my being to walk through. It it was horrendous. Well, I'm even trying to imagine that, like, you're still living under the same roof, technically. Like, how did that happen? Like, how did he not just try to, like, I guess, reel you in? Or how did you, how were you able to do that? Well, it was the metaphor for the relationship that he was in the master and wouldn't relocate. And I was in the partial conversion of the garage. So there's the metaphor. And then I I understood after doing the research and the work and listening to other stories of, of thrivers that had gotten through this, that they didn't make it unless they were brutal about the no contact. And a friend of mine said, this is going to be your toughest endurance race you've ever experienced. And that was very good advice. There were times that I wanted to scream and rail against what seemed like injustice, but I had to just repeat that mantra. This is the universe doing for you what you cannot do for yourself. And it was like I stepped into and walked through and came out of some life lesson of eternity that felt ancestral. It felt ancient. It felt like this was the perfect storm that I needed to walk through to really grow as a human being. And it is not the easier, softer way, believe me, to hold no contact, but it's what works. Well, you know, I applaud you for that because I know that is very difficult to do because um, especially living under the same roof, I can imagine he probably tried a lot of tactics to engage with you and manipulate you. And, um, you know, just hearing you say like, this was transformative for you. And, and also, you know, going back to what you said, like just how you felt about, okay, I'm losing this, but also like losing your comfort of food too. Um, like I'm imagining how difficult that was. Like, you know, for people listening, I'm sure they can relate like, oh my gosh, the thought of not having food there for a comfort or to use um, in the way I'm used to using it, that can be really scary. Like, how did you go about that too? Um, learning how to use food or have food in your life in a whole different way, like not having it for comfort, not like changing your relationship with food. I think one of the most pivotal moments was when I could stick my hand on my heart And be in front of that quart container of ice cream or whatever it was and say, you know, and, and I already had three bites. I was sated. I didn't want any more. Is this the most loving thing I can do right now for myself? And I had to think it through to how I would feel the next morning when I would wake up with that sugar hangover 
right? And just feel so clogged and blocked. And that really helped me put the food down and choose something more nurturing that was actually authentic. It sounds like you really had to work to be mindful in those moments instead of going into the automatic behaviors and you know, a lot of people listen going, gosh, if I could only do that, because I hear that all the time, like I keep telling myself I'm not going to turn to the food or I'm, you know, going to try to find another way to cope or to comfort myself, or I don't want to have this relationship with food. I don't want to beat myself up over after if I, you know, eat something mindlessly, or I don't want to feel guilty because it doesn't feeds into that. I'm not good enough. Something's wrong with me. Um, you know, difficult path, right? Um, and it sounds like, you know, when people say, oh gosh, you know, so easy for them to say now that like they're recovered or they don't do it anymore. But for you, like, how was that process for you? Because I know it's myself too. It's very difficult. It's It's been a lifetime process. I mean, the the comforting with food began very early. It was modeled. It was what I knew. And it's not like it still doesn't rear its ugly head, but I can see it now. I can see it now. And it's not of interest because I've had the experience, but I've had to go through those experiences with as much kindness and compassion as I would my young son, you know, or, you know, think of myself as a youngster and be kind, even when I slip. I'd have to say I'm a human being. I'm doing the best I can, you know, and the next time I go down the same alleyway, but I'd see the pothole, right? And I'd fall into that pothole. Okay, get myself up, dust myself off the next time, you know, I go in and I don't fall in the pothole. I walk around it. It's a process and it's a continuing process. And I build like a little, you know, baby with the blocks. I build and then I have to have kindness and compassion for myself. I have that for others naturally, but to come full circle and have it for myself has been quite a process. I think that is so key. You know, I think so many people I you know listen and I work with, they beat themselves up so much. They're, they're so hard on themselves, right? It's like the inner critic is so harsh, yet they're so, so good at people pleasing and taking care of other people and having compassion for other people. And I often say like, where's your self-care voice? Or where's your self-compassion? Like, no, right? It's like, you know, you do one thing that, you know, you think is quote unquote, wrong or not good enough. And it's just this incessant like bully in your head. And, you know, that that's just horrible. Of course, you want to numb out and not hear that all day long. Can you imagine? <laughs> right? So And if you've been doing this, like you said, since a child using food for comfort, like what makes you think it's going to be so easy? Um, Was that always had that, like, I shouldn't be doing this or why did I do that again? It's like, why do you think you wouldn't, (laughs) right? Like, yeah, I, I really believe living on this planet on earth is not for the faint of heart. It is a very difficult assignment. I mean, who knows, right? It could be the straight up ghetto of the universe for all I know. I mean, next time I'm going to read the fine print and the contract very carefully before I sign up. But but understanding that, you know, gives me so much more kindness and compassion 
towards self. And then also, you know, working with other people like you do, you see, you see in black and white what we can do to ourselves and it makes it less appealing because we've had practice in reversing the messaging. And I think, I think it's, it's ingrained. It's, it's ingrained in this patriarchal soup we've, we've been swimming in. And I think, you know, we're starting to unwind it and we're starting to wake up to it and say, yeah, no more, this doesn't feel good. And I don't need to do that. Well, absolutely. And you know, when you said to like, I'm, I was too much, you were like given that message. I hear that all the time, like these messages from young childhood, like your emotions are too much or you're too much or just quiet down or like washing the voice, you know, like disappear. Don't, you know, it's like, wow, that is such a harsh, like, message to be told and to be you know to bring into adulthood like I'm too much like how do you feel about yourself now well and I just want to say one thing about that messaging and it comes not just from the family system but it comes from the educational system in Mm -hmm. spades and it comes from our healthcare system (laughs) it comes from the financials like it's all the way around we're like diving into that. And I know you had a question behind it. So what was that question again? Cause I just lost my train of thought. Oh no. System. I mean, it's a big question, right? So, um, you know, you went through this whole process and, and so much change and I'm wondering, and part of your healing, how do you feel about yourself now? Has that shifted and changed? It has changed so much and it started you know, right after my marriage ended, that's when the, the real purity uh, started to crystallize. And I, I knew that, but I was terrified to, because I was so dependent on male attention since second grade and Billy Fritz. Uh, it was just ingrained. I was nothing unless, and that's very costly. That's a very expensive. So once I could break free of that dynamic and I, I did not even well, I had one date in seven years by choice, by choice. And this was after being attached at the hip forever. You know, if, I, if one was going south, I would be setting the next one up on the sidelines. So this was the first time in my lifetime I could authentically say, you know what, I'm going to learn who I am and I'm going to learn to really care and nurture from within not from without and without men from the outside in meant yeah it meant male attention but it also meant achievement mm. wow so were people surprised that you had such a transformation um i i think as from the outside looking in people really just saw me as strong i mean i was very focused and very determined when i was when I was let go from my job for confronting my boss, mm-hmm. being sexually harassed, I created my own talent brokerage firm. My first deal was to knock on the door of the factory and get Andy Warhol to do a commercial for Pontiac. He didn't want to do. And then I was summoned across the bridge to New Jersey by Roger Ailes, who was running CNBC and had his own network called America's Talking. He wanted celebrities on that network. And 
I couldn't get him to come. So I grabbed a cameraman one night and just, we went to this red carpet event and I was interviewing talent as they came down the carpet. And then I'd have them look to camera and say their name and they were watching this network, right? This was before that was common. Nobody was doing that. I would just step up and take opportunities and make things manifest. And then I wanted to, to be a producer and I became a TV producer. I didn't even know what that was, you know? And then I was summoned to LA and started doing talent brokering and then producing out there and eventually attached Owen Wilson to a cookbook and set it up as a movie at Universal. I mean, like these things are, they're kind of standouts and they're kind of brave. And I had this tenacity and I had this drive and I was doing all this athletic activity on the side. And so people on the outside just looked at me like I was a go-getter and a doer and, you know, totally capable and competent. They had no idea how much I was shaking on the inside and terrified holding on to fumes of a marriage to feel safe and okay and valued. Well, it sounds like, you, well, the masks, right? The masks people put up and no idea what's going on, right? People probably thought, wow, this woman's successful and talented and little did anyone know what was really going on. And I think that's a lot of people who have eating disorders, right? They're so successful and they're, they look great on the outside. They put on the shine, you know, and then what's going on on the inside is so different. And I hear that a lot. It's like, they're the people who get the straight A's. They're the ones who are successful in their jobs and their careers and the super moms and the super friends. And yet the inner critic, is so harsh and the way they feel inside, like most people, right? They just, there's something else totally going on. Exactly. And that's one of the, the reasons I was motivated to write the book that I have and have it published. It's, it's very um, honest. I didn't hold anything back. I mean, my college boyfriend was like, I had no idea this stuff was going on. You know, my friends from high school got wind of it on Facebook and they were like, we had no idea. We envied you. We wanted to be you. Like, how can this be? And, and um, I think that that there's merit and there's worth for living with honesty and integrity and kindness and compassion. And I think talking about a taboo subject, such as the toxicity in our family lines that creates stuff that doesn't even belong to us, shame and blame and guilt. I mean, I didn't come in a food addict, but I learned it and I carried it. And it goes back farther than my mother and much farther than my father with his exercise bulimia. It goes way back in the lines if I trace it. So I really wanted to start talking about this taboo topic. So we're not quite as highly sensitized and we can start truth telling and become more as one, which we are. Well, and I think the more people do talk about these things, I think it's, it's better because I, I hear that all the time, you know, with people I speak with, it's like, almost this fear of wanting to talk about the toxic family system, wanting to talk about people they love and care about and that raised them. But then this, wait a minute, I can't do that. It's not allowed. I feel bad. I'm going to beat myself up. I'm not allowed to say that because that means I'm disrespecting them. I'm a bad daughter. I'm a bad son. I'm a bad whomever. Um, just because somebody 
raised you and there were some toxic things that went on, doesn't mean that they didn't love you or care about you or you still don't love them or there were great qualities about them that not all bad, but it means that maybe some things influenced you or had an impact on you. And I think that needs to be discussed and there's no shame in talking about those things, maybe having permission to speak about these things, like how did these things, these messages impact you? But that doesn't mean you're disrespecting anybody that you love. Um, that doesn't mean you're saying they're such bad people. Um, I'm sure you do love your family. I'm sure there were positive things. But that doesn't mean that some of the things you discussed weren't toxic. Right. And that's the truth. And that's what I'm living now. And I'm seeing it come full circle. You know, mm-hmm. I, there's there have been insights since the book's been out with my family and with strangers you know, people are having aha moments and things are shifting. And, and that's the point, Christina, and that's the purpose. So, I mean, that's very inspiring. And um, maybe people can hear what you're saying today, read your book, and maybe give themselves permission even to acknowledge some of the things from their past or the people in their lives that maybe did have some impact on them. Because certainly, you know, we talk about, there's not one cause of somebody having an eating disorder. There are multiple things that occur and it's not just oh this one person said this one thing or it was because I grew up in this family it's there's lots of things that happen certainly you know even if you have siblings not every sibling in the same family has an eating disorder right so um it can be genetics it can be personality it can be you know like you said peers teachers educators society there's there's a whole host of things that have to all come together so um I really appreciate you sharing all of that because it sounds like there were lots of things along the way too that contributed that and contributed to your healing, right? So yeah, yeah. And and it again, it was a process and I didn't do it alone. I had tremendous help along the way and I was open to all different types of modalities to explore. Well, and you know, I think it's people like you who are sharing this can have an impact on someone else's healing. You know, you never know who's listening. You never know who's taking these morsels and it has some kind of an impact. And maybe it's just planting a seed, but maybe someone will remember something you said, or they'll pick up your book and they'll go, oh, it starts them on the path, right? So really, really appreciate you doing this. Um, And I appreciate you. Yeah, (laughs) I appreciate you giving us the forum. So if anybody um, feels drawn, Mm-hmm. to what we spoke about today, Christina, um, as far as my side, just go to susangold.us. It's all there. And then if you really want the book, it's called Toxic Family, Transforming Childhood Trauma into Adult Freedom. And that's at Amazon and all the likely places. Mm-hmm. And it's it's out now? It's out. Mm-hmm. It's published. All right. Any last final words before we end, Susan? Just thank you. I know that you're sharing a lot of truth and you're opening so many hearts by the conversation that you're bringing to the table and the truth telling. So thank you, Christina. Thank you, Susan. Um, All right, guys, everything will be in the show notes. So want to go find more about Susan and her book, please go look at the show notes. And um, again, her book is on Amazon. Thank you so much. This podcast is designed to provide accurate and authoritative information in regards to the subject matter covered. It is given with the understanding that neither the host 
The publisher or the guests are rendering legal, accounting, clinical, or any other professional information. If you want a professional, you should find one.